This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous discussion of difficult subjects. Tonight is part of an ongoing series about mental illness, and our topic tonight is on being a psychiatrist. My guest is David Moltz, a psychiatrist here in Maine who works part-time at Midcoast Hospital at the Addiction Resource Center and part-time in private practice here in Portland. He's on the board of NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, and has a background in family therapy with an emphasis on mood disorders. Dr. Moltz is a distinguished life fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and was twice the recipient of the Exemplary Psychiatrist Award from NAMI. Dr. Moltz is also on the Executive Council here in Maine of the State Psychiatric Association. Welcome to Safe Space, David. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start at the beginning. How did you know that you wanted to go into psychiatry? The earliest that I can think of is um, is being quite young and kind of being preoccupied with what it would be like to be looking through somebody else's eyes and somebody else's experience. Um, I don't think I thought at that moment I want to be a psychiatrist, but I, I, I was probably 12 years old, maybe, and... Um, it was just a fascination for me about 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 that idea and and it turns out that the closest that you can come to that is to be working with somebody in a, a therapeutic situation um, where you're really trying to experience their experience and when you were little did you have an experience of realizing that someone else saw the same thing you were looking at in a really different way I mean is that what made you want to do that I guess so because I, I you know I would try to imagine what it would be like to wake up and be in somebody else's head looking through their eyes. And I couldn't imagine that. And I, I knew that it would be different. But and that fascinated you. Kind of fascinated me. I also come from a family with um, a strong um, social service bent. My mother uh, worked for the Department of Welfare. My, my father worked for domestic relations court as a probation officer. My sister was a um, psychologist. A, a, she had a doctorate in psychology. And her husband was a child psychiatrist. I see, um, so <laughs> a whole so lot of you. <laughs> the, um, the biggest question for me was whether to, when the time came to figure this out, was whether to go on as a psychologist or as a psychiatrist. What tipped um, the scale? What tipped the scale was uh, um, some discussions with my sister and her husband. Um, and there were two things that I remember. One, so psychology would mean going to graduate school in a more academic direction, or psychiatry would mean going to medical school. And... Um, and they both said that, first of all, that my brother-in-law had seen many more patients in his training than my sister had, um, so had much more clinical experience as part of his medical training. And the other was, and this is um, a, a little tricky to talk about because it's about power, but, um, but, what, but I remember my brother-in-law saying that as a psychiatrist, he had the power in the sense of if you wanted something to happen, you could make it happen more than as a psychologist. And um, and it turns out to be true, I think. Um, right, the field is very hierarchical. But again, it wasn't, it wasn't it, it, well, the idea was not power over people. It was power as y you have an idea about something happening and you can make it happen. Yeah, so it's yeah. like you could be more effective. Yeah. Yeah, yep. right, who wouldn't want that? Yep, <laughs> yep. And um, when you were in medical school, did people try to discourage you from being a psychiatrist? Um, no, it was almost, I mean, it was really tough getting through medical school, knowing that I wasn't going to be practicing as a, as a medical doctor. 
Um, no, the discouragement came from myself more than from others, I think. I think there was some, um, no, that was, uh, I was going to say some kind of discouragement from the field, but I don't think even that's, that, that that's true. So I want to stay with this idea of power because I think it's really interesting and it plays into being a psychiatrist in a lot of other mm-hmm. ways as well. Um, what for you, you know, you've been practicing as a psychiatrist now for many years, mm-hmm. would be safe to say. Mm-hmm. And um, wh- what for you are some of the challenges about being a psychiatrist, maybe even just currently? And are they related to power, the power of being Absolutely. A Power is, is a kind of, Something that I struggle with every day. Yeah, think, so give me an example, maybe, of how okay. how a story where well, the that, power of a psychiatrist is challenging for you. Um, many, you know, the, in the in its baldest, it's that I have the power to commit somebody. You know, to call the police and and um, have them put in a hospital. I hardly ever do it. I mean, in my whole career, I've very rarely done that. Um, I hate getting to that point. Um, I, I probably go too far in, in not doing that, um, but then the challenge there is how to how do you is I guess the well, let me say something else. Um, the other ways in which power are important is just in the relationship. Somebody's coming to me for help. Um, I have something that they want, whether it's um, ideas or ways f- to help them change or medication, um, uh, and. Um, and that gives me power. Um, you know, they're there because they want something from me. I hopefully don't want anything from them, you know, in the same way. Um, and so I, I think like, a fundamental task is how to honor that and how to respect that and how to n- neither throw it away nor misuse it, you know. Um, right. Neither, neither throwing it away seems really important in your, in your wishing to to not abuse it, that you don't not give them the mm-hmm. thing that they are wanting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, particularly in in the, I mean, the 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 corollary to the to the social power, which is that I can hospitalize somebody, is that I can also help people out with disability, with with um, work issues. Mm-hmm. You know, my my um, my signature carries weight, and I can use that um, to help somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you said a bit earlier that you probably go too far to avoid committing someone, uh, what do you mean by that? What is going too far in the other direction? Um, the, w- when when the question come when when the question comes up of whether to to force somebody into some situation that they don't want to be in, um, trust comes up there. Um, my my trust of what they're telling me, my trust of my own, I'll call it intuition, or my, you know my sense of them. Um, so I have to assess the situation both using what they're telling me and showing me and what I feel myself and make a decision. So maybe just to make this really uh, palpable, maybe we could talk in like just a hypothetical example. What would be a situation where you might okay. wonder if someone should be in the hospital? So if I'm talking to somebody and they are... Um, talking about suicide or they're hinting at suicide and as we talk you know they say um, sometimes I'd just rather not be here or I'm so mad at so and so that that I sometimes I just want to hurt him that would be the other the other example um, and I will 
try to draw them out about that and find out what what particularly they mean. Because when somebody says they don't want to be around anymore, they can mean everything from waking up and just, oh my God, it's another day, and I wish I didn't have to do this, to um, I'm going to go out and buy a gun, mm-hmm. um, or I know where I can get a gun. Yeah. Um, so as I talk to them about that, um, I, I have to assess how serious a threat this is and if there's anything I can do to to change it. Sometimes I will say to them, if you tell me this, for instance, that you're going to go hurt somebody, I have to take some action to report that or to stop you. So it's really important that you tell me if you mean this or not. Um, and then I have to trust that what they're telling me in response to that, um, I can trust. Right, and already it introduces a, a complication, right? Because if you're being so honest with them, of course the instinct to censor is there. Yeah. So already trust is a little bit rocked by a person, therefore knowing if I say this, there will be consequences, so maybe I should hide that's why things. Yep. Yeah, that's why it's complicated, but my experience is that people really tell me, um, you know, I want, I want to say that almost all the time <laughs> it's turned out well. Um, and uh, so when I say, if you mean that I have to do something, do you mean that? Generally, people will say, oh, no, I'm just, I'm just saying that. And then we talk about it some more. Once in a while, they say, yeah, that's mm-hmm. what I mean. And, and I take that as, yes, I want you to do something mm-hmm. to, to protect me, you know. From this. So earlier you said, you know, you have to both really listen to what the person is saying, but you also have to kind of listen to yourself yeah. and notice. And what have, you know, over the years of paying attention to yourself and your own inner gauge, what are the ways that you can sense how dangerous something is and whether or not you do need to act? Um, that's a great question. Because um, when I said sometimes I go too far in the other way. I think that there are times in which many other people would say, oh, that's it, we got to act on this, where I will take a chance. I'll go another step and, um, and, and trust the person when somebody else might not. Um, and I, you know, it seems to work pretty well. Uh-huh. Because I think that people generally, um, you know, if, some, if, somebody's really, if somebody really wants to kill themselves and is really determined to, they're not going to come and tell me that in the first place. Right. They're probably not going to be sitting with me, and if they are, they're they're not going to tell me. And and the, uh, the very few times I can think of when I was working with someone who did suicide, there were no hints. There there were no partial statements. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I see. So by the fact that they're in your office telling you suggests already a degree of trustworthiness. Yeah. Well, that they want to engage around. Yes. That, yes. That they, that they want something else. I will often um, talk to somebody about. First of all, I will always say that I really believe them. That that um, that that, and I'll, I mean, I might say something like, "I understand that you really mean this, and that you really are strongly feeling like you want to kill yourself, and yet you're here talking to me about it. So, what else is going on? Mm-hmm. What, there's some struggle in you about this, right? And then we talk about that struggle, right? And um, um, or I will ask a person how they've managed to stop. You know, if they've been feeling this way for a while, how do you stop yourself from acting on it? Um, and that's often helpful when mm-hmm. I find out things that I can support. So you mentioned earlier that you have had experience where someone did actually complete suicide. Yes. And how, you know, how was that for you? How Did that haunt you for oh, a long horrible. time? 
It was horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't say it haunted me, but I'd never forgot him, certainly. Um, I can only think right now of a couple of, of instances. I've been practicing for, you were kind to say, a long time. It's been 35 years. And in that time, you know, n- n- very a, a few, two, three mm-hmm. people who I worked with directly um, did um, suicide. Um, and one of them was somebody who planned it very, very carefully and... Um, and I kind of knew from the minute I met her that that was her strong intent. And several years later, she canceled an appointment with me, and she canceled it because she knew that if she didn't come for the appointment, I would call to find out where she was, and she didn't want to be interrupted. Yeah. Mm. And the other was somebody who, was, who had a number of times become um, psychotic, had, had kind of gone into a state of real confusion and not, knowing what he was doing and and not thinking clearly at all. He'd never been suicidal and without any warning at all um, shot himself. Mm. And that was, um, I mean, they were both devastating. Yeah, right. Sort of it's the most heartbreaking part of our work. Yeah. Yeah. Did you find that afterwards you were much more careful? I mean, did it almost make you... I mean, did it have a sort of legacy for you for a while with your uh, other people who might be suicidal that you were m- more cautious or more questioning? Um, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, it's certainly, I, I, I mean, it was stunning to me and it was very upsetting. And well, maybe I, I guess I would say yes. I, I didn't, um, I didn't become overly careful, which, which I would worry about, you know. Um, I mean, I worked in a situation in an agency where, at one point, for reasons that were never clear, a, a number of there were a number of suicides, and the staff staff got um, really frantic about it. If anybody mentioned suicide, you know, alarms would go off. Um, I can imagine that didn't happen. But I, I certainly, yes. I mean, I, I was. I won't even say I was more careful because I think I'm always careful. Mm-hmm. But I was. I was scared. I mean, it was. It was. Yeah. It's. Um, it's upsetting both because I worry that I missed something, that I did something wrong, that I could have prevented it, and just that it's so sad. I mean, it's such a tragedy. Yeah. yeah. So I want to shift now a little bit to um, to what you love about being a psychiatrist. Yeah, um, what, what do you love about it, and did you get to feel like you really can see the world through someone else's eyes as you had hoped? Um, well, not the way I imagined it. <laughs> But um, actually, actually, probably what I love most is moments in which um, I say something or do something that really makes a difference in a person's life. Um, that's, a, that's a wonderful feeling. Um, it will often happen that I don't even know it at the time. I was going to say, <laughs> they come back and say, that thing you said, yes. and then you can't even remember yes. that you'd said that. Yes. No, I, I usually remember. Uh-huh. I, sometimes I remember it differently. Uh-huh. Um, Excuse me, something that I really like about, something that I've learned is that, um, and this has to do with power also, is that I don't have the kind of power that people imagine that we have. Um, I, I, so I don't have to worry too much about saying exactly the right thing, because if it's not the right thing, it's not going to do anything. You know, it's not going to, nobody's going to take bad advice from me. Um, they're going to take what, um, what they find useful. And sometimes they're even going to change it into something that they find useful. They'll improve on it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, I particularly like it when it comes out. A word we haven't used, which is kind of the opposite of power, is collaboration. 
and I love collaborating with people. Um, so when it comes to medication, for instance, um, I see my job as um, telling them what I can tell them about what I think they're struggling with and what medicine I think might help or might not help or what the choices would be. And then I kind of think out loud and see their reactions and they feed back to me what, you know, one medicine causes weight gain, another causes sexual problems, and they're real clear which one matters to them, whichever it is. Um, and, we, and I really feel like we reach a conclusion together. Um, and I like that very much. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space, and I'm talking to Dr. David Maltz about his work as a psychiatrist. So I want to uh, follow up on that about collaboration because you wrote this really interesting article about the culture of the mental health practitioner and the culture of the substance abuse provider, and you've really moved from being primarily a mental health provider yeah. to a substance abuse provider. And mm-hmm. um, Could you tell me a little bit about what some of the changes were for you in focusing mostly on substance abuse, and especially in relation to that collaborative piece that you mentioned. That is, um, it's very fresh for me because I'm still, I've been working in a substance abuse agency for three years after 30-something years of working mostly in mental health. In 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 substance abuse, I'm working primarily prescribing medication. I'm part of a, a team, part of a, of a program, um, and I'm only one part of it, and I'm, one of the things that's been really interesting is getting really clear about that. In substance abuse, more than in, in mental health, I'm used to working as part of a team, but really I had the final word. And, and in substance abuse and certainly where I work and how I work, I'm only part of the team, and I don't have the last word about things. So initially it took some real getting used to for me. I would The team would decide um, in a discussion that such and such was going to happen with the patient. The patient hadn't been coming to the program, for instance, and so I needed to stop prescribing for him because because the, the medication I was prescribing was only to help the person get involved in the, tr- the real treatment, which is the more the program treatment. And so that would be decided, and then I would meet with the person, and I would get talked out of it. You know, Oh, no, it's only just that I didn't come because of such and such. And I would go back to the team and say, I didn't do that. And they would, they would, they they were not used to working with a doctor. I was not used to working in such a program, and it took us, I would say, a year to start to figure out how to respect each other more. And I really shifted from thinking that the the medicine that I prescribe mostly is called Suboxone, and it's a a really good medication for people with opiate problems. Uh, it really stops craving. It really stops like heroin withdrawal. addiction, for instance. Yes, yeah. yes. or pain pills mm-hmm. here more commonly. So it really stops withdrawal. It really stops um, craving. It does not change people's thinking. And addiction is really, you know, there's the physical dependence on the drug, but then there's the addiction, which is all the behaviors around using the drug. And it took me a long time to figure out that the, um, that the medicine didn't, didn't change people's thinking and that they really needed to be in treatment. So the biggest difference is, to me, has been, or one of the differences that in mental health, the person is coming probably because they want something, but if they don't, but, but I don't have, I can offer them something and they can take it or not. Um, in, in the substance abuse work, people generally really want the medicine that I'm prescribing. And so on the one hand, it gives me really more direct power because I have the power to, to not give that if they don't follow the rules of the program. 
one of the things you wrote about was also the issue of kind of consequences in the culture and how, you know, you would get talked out of firing them, essentially, <laughs> by the patient. Yes. And that you really, I, I wonder if you could tell the story of how you and the staff came to this kind sure. of compromise, sure. this wonderful story. Sure. I guess the other thing I want to say about that is the other side of me having more power because I have this medicine is um, I was frequently in the position of somebody um, not taking responsibility for their actions, not telling me the truth about their actions because they want this thing for me that they're going to lose if they tell me the truth. So so the staff and I were having recurrent problems where um, they were used to working in a situation where if somebody didn't follow the rules of the program, they left the program. Uh, and when medicine wasn't involved, that was just it was it was a le- it was less consequential. I was in this position where I was the one who was prescribing this medicine that people really wanted, and I felt um, terrible. I felt like I was depriving them. So if they continued to smoke marijuana, for instance, which was not um, allowed in the program, really, it's a total abstinence program. Um, I would be, or if they missed if they missed a couple of um, of, of of treatment meetings. Um, we would decide that I needed to stop prescribing to them. And I felt like I was just throwing them out, you know, and off a cliff. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what we finally figured out instead was that when somebody um, was still smoking marijuana, was missing groups, um, they would come more often to see me rather than less often. So um, if they were, I follow people in groups myself, and if they were at a point where they were only coming once a month because they were doing well and they started missing treatment sessions rather than the first step being sorry you're out the first step would be now you have to come back in two weeks now you have to come back in one week Um, you have to keep coming weekly until you stop smoking marijuana so it was very comfortable for me because I was offering them more rather than less right and the idea is that you were meeting their need presumably because if they were they they were obviously struggling at some level and they didn't experience it as punitive. I mean, that almost never came up. It was, um, it was really, I think, accepted that this was so I could keep a closer watch on them or I could offer them more. It's, it's such a wonderful, part of why I loved it is that that whole idea of sort of consequences can feel rigid and punitive mm-hmm. at times, mm-hmm. although one understands where that comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, it's wonderful that you came up with that, yeah. Yeah. that idea so that people feel more cared about. Yeah. So there is still, I mean, it still works both ways. I mean, if somebody is repeatedly still using heroin, say, um, even though they're on the Suboxone, we, we, we stop prescribing it because it's just not working. Yeah. Clearly. Um, so there's still some balance between pulling back and coming closer, but I love the, I think it was just a great, the staff was very pleased with it. Um, yeah. I was very pleased with it. Sounds um, like the patients were pleased with it. Too. <laughs> That's yeah. great. Yeah. So I want to ask you a new question now, which is about... Um, about medication in general, and um, you, I know that you went to medical school at a time that sort of analytic culture of psychiatry was really shifting towards a more biological view mm-hmm. of, of mental illness. And, you know, now the culture of our field is very, very biologically driven, um, but also very driven by the pharmacological industry. And I wonder, I'd like to ask you a little bit about how you as a practitioner juggle so much of what we're now learning about the degree to which the pharmaceutical industry is involved in shaping the studies that we're doing, in publishing only the studies that support their drug, and so on, and what that's like for you as an individual practitioner, and and how you try to mitigate that in your work. It's funny. In some ways, it's a relief to me. 
And I, I never quite thought of that till you just asked me the question. Um, I am I'm old enough so that I'm uh, was really trained in when I started psychiatry. Psychiatrists were therapists, um, and they did some prescribing too. Um, so I feel, and then I had training in family therapy and did a lot of that. So I've I've um, spent most of my career kind of integrating um, the biological and the non-biological, psychological family. Um, and I'm very comfortable with that. Um, so I think of, I don't make such a distinction between prescribing medication and doing therapy. I think they merge much more than people think they do. Um, I can see somebody briefly once a month to talk about medication, and, and we're, we're connecting at the same time. And I'm interested in their lives, and they're telling me about their lives. Um, and I'm important in their life in a way that goes beyond prescribing. So when you say there's some sort of relief, are you saying that sort of as the pharmacy? Okay, I, go ahead. I got that. So the relief to me is that uh, medicine has never worked as well as everybody said it was supposed to. Um, and I never knew what to make of that. And, um, and coming to understand that a lot of what we have been taught is, um, is incomplete. Let me say that. I don't think that, um, that there's no place for medicine at all. I've seen medicine really save people and turn their lives around and allow them to do things that they couldn't have done otherwise, like get out of relationships that were bad for them, get into relationships that would be good for them, um, and not be suicidal. Um, so I have a lot of respect for medicine, but I also um, feel that a, a large degree of humility is called for that has, that has been absent from the field. So we talk as if um, there's a cure. You take medicine and depression is cured. Um, I guess I would. Say, I guess maybe what I've learned to think about in substance abuse goes for mental health also, which is that the medicine can form a base, um, but that you have to change your thinking, and um, and medicine doesn't do that. Um, so the relief is, it's not that I'm doing this badly; it's that it doesn't do what everybody told us it would do. Yeah. It sort of puts it in perspective. It mm-hmm. sounds like, mm-hmm. yeah. So we just have a few more minutes left, and I want to um, end by asking you a little bit about how this work has affected you personally. I mean, so after 35 years of working in this profession, uh, w- sort of how has it changed how you understand yourself? Um, whether that's, you know, I guess in some ways I'm asking you, what are the main lessons your patients have taught you oh, about yourself? Um, well, let me say first that I'm not somebody who... Um, you know, when I meet somebody, I'm doing a psychological analysis on them. I mean, I, I don't carry it with me. Though. I don't think I do that, actually, in my work, either, actually. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I think I keep things pretty um, um, day-to-day, you know, and not very um, theoretical. Um, so it's not that... It, so I, I haven't learned in that way. I guess what I've learned... Well, first of all, is that I can be of use to people. I mean, I feel like... I, I, I think compared to when I started in this field when I really didn't know what I could offer anybody. I feel like that I really, um, I, I'm not even sure I could say what, but I feel that I, that I often have a positive influence on people, and that's, you know, a treasure. Mm. You know. I would say that I've also, and, and I don't know, I, I think my personal life and my professional life have supported each other in this, in kind of learning balance and um, staying balanced um, emotionally. So I think one of the biggest things that we can do for people is just be with them. 
um, as their, uh, you know, I think one of the things I had to overcome when I started out was that I had to do something. And that, and I think that there's something very powerful about about just being with somebody and not getting scared off um, or not, not reacting uh, one way or the other. I don't mean sitting there neutrally like a blank slate, but I mean staying human, but also staying um, present and balanced. Um, and I think that that has fed into my my non-professional life as well as vice versa. Yeah. David, I'm going to have to stop you there. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. It's really a pleasure talking yeah. to you. This is Dr. Ann. My guest has been David Moltz, a practicing psychiatrist here in Maine, about his work and experiences as a psychiatrist. If you'd like to listen to the show in its entirety or send it to a friend through email, please go to our website at www.safespaceradio.com. You can subscribe to get weekly notifications of shows. You can download it through iTunes, or you can like us on Facebook. I want to thank Andrea Moraskin for mixing the sound tonight and Maurice Lennon for the music. Uh, coming up next is Covering the Bases with Danny. With Thaddeus. <laughs>